This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Happy Friday to you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions about whatever's on your heart and mind, as long as it relates to the Bible, to the Lord Jesus, to the church, the Christian faith, whatever is on your heart, we'll do the best we can. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions in that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Hey, tonight, Friday, we're starting a brand new book uh, for our Friday Night New Testament studies. and we'll be starting... Uh, in the book of First Peter, um, I'm only going to do two verses tonight to, to sort of introduce the book and kick it off. Uh, we're going to talk about election tonight. We're going to talk about um, um, being strangers in the world. The, the, the really important part, the foundation that Peter sets right at the beginning is really important. I'm kind of excited about starting a new book. We've been in the book of Hebrews for uh, well over a year, and um, I'm so I'm excited. Hey, one other note, and this has nothing to do with the program, but uh, tonight, today actually, is uh, uh, our youngest son, Terry's 45th birthday. Our baby is 45 years old. Paul, I'm letting you know, I just spoke to him on the phone. He is at the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, as he is every year on his birthday in Las Vegas, so I thought I'd take a chance and talk to him, wish him a happy birthday, tell him we loved him um, last year we waited till the night and we didn't get him because he was out to dinner with some clients but um 45 years old pastor ken's 45 years old just turned 45 wow we're already getting old aren't we paula let me go to the first question we'd love your live calls today here's the first one from tim he said pastor do you believe second Peter 3.10 is fulfilled at the second coming or after the millennium. Tim, I love the way you asked that question because I think the answer is a a little bit of both. Let me read the verse. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Um, 
the day of the Lord is always a reference to the day that Jesus comes in judgment. Uh, he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. Jesus speaks a lot of this in the Olivet Discourse. Um, and and the, the mountains are going to split. The earthquake is going to be uh, more severe than anything by far that's ever happened. Um, and that's when he's going to destroy his enemies with the word. That's when righteousness comes back into the world and he's going to establish his kingdom. Um, so the day of the Lord always refers to that day. Now, the, the second part of this, the last sentence, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Uh, I believe, Tim, that he's speaking about uh, after the millennium when there's a new heavens and a new earth and this earth is completely uh, destroyed. Now, the reason this earth has to be completely destroyed is because this earth, once tinged by sin, can never be perfect. And the new heaven, the new earth, is going to be perfect. Like, I, I can imagine, like a field trip. Jesus will, will say, this is the way I made things at the beginning. This is the way I always intended things should be. And, uh, you know, we ask those questions, why are things happening that are happening? Why is the world so evil and so ugly? Uh, it, it's certainly not because of him, because he made it like that. Now, in fairness, Tim, there are some who teach, and I have no beef with this, but there's some who teach that that um, this all occurs at the day of the Lord. Um, but, but I think by seeing the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire, I think that's more complete than the details that we get on this in Revelation chapter 19 and beyond. So uh, I personally think that there's two fulfillments. I think the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Um, that will be when he, when he comes. No one will know. He's going to appear in the eastern sky and, uh, and set everything right that's been broken for these millennia. And um, I think there's a period of time after the millennium where everything that we know of the earth is going to be completely destroyed. Uh, Revelation chapters 19 through 21, read those chapters and you'll get some direction about that question. Peter, no doubt, when he wrote this, Second Peter he wrote at the end of his life, like Paul wrote Second Timothy at the end of his life, and Peter knew that his time was near. So he was talking about the things that mattered. Look up, be ready, for the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Good question. Thank you very much. Uh, here is a question from Niles. And Niles, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you, sort of in pain. Uh, Niles says, every year at this time my church preaches continually about giving. Is it biblical to do so? I ask because it gets old. So... Um, let me say, Niles, it is not unbiblical to do so. Um, but I think it's unwise, personally. Uh, I realize that sometimes uh, there are a lot of churches who at the first of the year, um, you know, they're dealing with budget concerns and shortfalls from the previous year. Uh, make no mistake, having a church and having employees and and um, maintaining buildings and supporting mortgages and all that stuff. It's expensive. And um, I, I think a lot of churches have fallen into the habit of simply talking about the need for money and trying to get pledges and commitments. Uh, and, and so it is not unbiblical. There's nothing wrong with churches that do that. So I want my comments to be flavored 
by that last statement. It's not wrong. On the other hand, Niles, it is so tiring, and that's what you said. It gets old. It's tiring to hear. You know, there's a lot of people doing the best they can just to get by, and they go to church, and instead of being able to hear about Jesus, they're, they're, they're pounded sometimes relentlessly for money. And I think this is one of the real weaknesses of the way we do church in our culture. Um, I, I believe, and, and uh, we practice what we preach here at Calvary Chapel. We never ask for money. I've never given a message um, directed at giving. I teach the Bible about giving when it comes up in our verse-by-verse scripture. Um, but I, I just think it's um, unseemly, at least to me. Maybe it's just because that's the vision that God has given me, but it just seems unseemly uh, to, to be pushing people. I got a, a phone call today, and you guys all get these kind of calls, but but you'll see the telemarketing calls. And when, when you pick up the phone and say hello, and I, I don't, I can't see well enough to see my caller ID, so I just hello, and then I can hear all the voices in the background. And may I speak to to Ron, please? And this is he. Well, Ron, I am so and so. I say I don't take telemarketing calls, and I just hang up the whole time. They never stop talking, and sometimes I feel like that's what we've turned church into. We're telemarketing our own people, only we're doing it in person. We're doing it with guilt and trying to compel people to give. And I think a greater statement, Niles, would be for the pastor to stand up and say, God provides our needs and we'll never ask you for anything. And then by teaching the word and letting the Holy Spirit have his way in people's hearts, then I think our needs would be met. It's happened here for 24 and a half years. And I'm not going to change. So, Niles, I sympathize with you at the same time. Please give them grace. Uh, that's the way church is done. And it is expensive. Unfortunately, it is really expensive uh, to uh, to do a church, especially if a church is uh, any size and a staff. It's really expensive. People are depending on it. So that's the best I can do. Let me say one other thing. I do this from time to time. One of the things that irritated me the most about Christian radio or Christian television is the constant pleading for money, the manipulation for money. Listen to every commercial. I'm venting for a moment, not in an unspiritual way, I hope. But listen to every radio program, especially at the end of December, when we, we just completed that time when, oh, year-end giving is really important for us. We've got to balance the books. If you want us to stay on the air, listen to every one this year. Every single one that I listen to. Now, there might have been some that escaped, but every one I listen to now have a gimmick about matching funds. Oh, we've had a very generous donor who's going to match all of your gifts. So if you give now, between now and December 31st, your gift will be doubled, effectively making your gift twice what it was intended to be. Now, you can't convince me that every church suddenly has a generous, wealthy benefactor. I've seen this growing in trend over the years. 
And instead of using the radio time, our radio program, not this one, but the radio program where we teach the Bible, uh, you know, we get 26 minutes out of, a, out of a half hour period of time. 26 minutes. I want to use all 26 minutes or as much of the 26 minutes as I can to teach the Bible. I don't want to use 10 minutes of that time or even more in some cases to try to manipulate people to giving. And we've never asked for a single dime, never spent one second of time on our radio broadcast to do that. And I challenge the pastors, and we have pastors who listen to this program, they're in contact with me occasionally. I challenge pastors, especially if you have a radio ministry, just to say, God, if you want us on the radio, you'll provide. And trust him instead of asking for money. We had a sweet lady. I, I, I wasn't able to meet her. I was unavailable. But a sweet lady who walked in the church as a regular radio listener of this program. And she said, Pastor Ron blessed me with some advice. It was hard for me to hear, but it was good advice. And Lord told me today to give him some money. And so he brought, this lady brought in some money. And bless her heart. See, we, we never had to ask anybody to do that. So it wasn't like a bazillion dollars or anything. But it was a gift of love that was given freely, voluntarily. Okay, I'm done venting. I'm ready for phone calls now. Here is a question from Mark. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, what is your position on the impeccability of Christ? For those of you in the audience who don't know that theological term, uh, the peccability or the impeccability of Christ refers to uh, could Jesus have sinned? Was Jesus potentially able to give into temptation sin? Or was Jesus um, uh, so pure, so holy, that though he was tempted, he was never in any danger to sin? Mark, uh, to me, this is an essential of our faith. Uh, to, to believe that Jesus could have sinned would assign to him a sinful nature. Um, and, and if Jesus had a sinful nature, if he wasn't the son of God, then we're all lost. So I am very, very strong on the impeccability of Christ, that being it was impossible for him to sin even though he was tempted in all ways as we are. Now, there are people who will ask me, and I always use the same example from my own life to try to, to, to clarify my position here. Well, if Jesus couldn't have sinned, then the temptation wasn't like the temptation we get. Well, the Bible says he was tempted in all ways as we are, but he was tempted by sin. But he was never tempted to sin. You see, when you and I are tempted by sin, we're tempted to sin. Jesus never, ever was tempted to sin because sin was a source of disgust, repugnance to the Lord. So Jesus could not have sinned if he could were lost. In my own life, you know, I've never had a drink. I, 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 I took a drink of alcohol when I was in high school, like everybody does, and, and it was so nasty, I spit it out. And from that time, I mean, I've never had a drink. Now, I've been tempted to drink a lot in my life before Christ. As a businessman, there were people, we'd make big business deals, and people would say, well, if you won't drink with me, we're not going to make this deal. I said, I'm sorry, then we're not going to make the deal. Well, why won't you drink with me? Because it tastes nasty. I hate it. It has nothing to do with the business deal that we're taking. And it cost me from time to time. 
but I never for a moment considered giving in just to make a deal. And sin to Jesus was like the taste of that alcohol in my mouth when I spit it out the first time I tried it. So, Mark, it was impossible for Jesus to sin. He was indeed impeccable that way. Good question. I like those kind of questions. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions on this Friday. Um, Diane asked, does the New Testament support the death penalty? Um, Diane, it does. Um, Government is given the sword. Um, Paul writes in the book of Romans, a sword referring to the death penalty. Uh, Obviously, the Old Testament is very clear. If a man takes a life, uh, his life will then be taken. But it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's also supported uh, in our New Testament. So, um, yes, the New Testament does support the death penalty. Oliver says, there are many different religions, so how can you know which one is true? Or maybe they're all true. Well, Oliver, they can't all be true because they don't say the same thing. Now, they can all be false if they don't say the same thing, but they can't all be true because they stand in contradistinction one to another. So there are a lot of different religions. I say all the time, God hates religion. He always has. He always will. And there are a lot of different ones. Religion, I identify as as man trying to reach up to God. Relationship, that which truly saves us in Christ, is Jesus reaching down to man. And the more we try to reach up to God, the more frustrated we become because the gulch, the gap between us and God is infinite. And it doesn't matter if you're a lot holier than I am. The gap between you and Jesus is still infinite. So, there are lots of different religions. The question is, how can you know which one is true? And Oliver, that's the really good news that I have for you today. You can know, you can have confidence in Christianity as being true, just like Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. You can know it's true because he demonstrated his victory over death. Jesus was murdered. First of all, he really lived. He's a real historical person. We have overwhelming evidence of his ministry. We know he was put to death. Again, overwhelming evidence. And then equally overwhelming is the evidence that he didn't stay dead. We also know that that's what he said all along would happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And on the third day, raised again, you can go back into the Old Testament prophecies and see that repeatedly, time, time, and time again. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, because he lives, it's sort of like the exclamation point on truth. And there's no other religion, there's no other holy book that predicted such things. There's no other religious founder who was put to death and didn't stay dead. By the way, the the man that we know as the Antichrist is going to counterfeit the miracle of resurrection 
in the last days when people are given over to the lie. But until this point, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, C.T. Russell, none of them have died to come back to life. And so we know that they're not true. At the same time, we have confidence that what we believe is true, and there's only one thing. Truth, by definition, is mutually exclusive. So that's the way we can know that Christianity is the truth. You know, Oliver, I've had people in conversations with this say, well, you know, I just don't believe that the, the resurrection is is provable or I don't think that, that that validates Christian claims. What about all the other good people from other, other religions? You know, additionally, Christianity is the only what is called a world religion where you don't have to do anything except receive it to find it. Only Christianity is about what God has already done. Every other religion is about what you have to do to get to God. It's why you'll never find eternal security in the mind or heart of somebody in any other religion. A Muslim can only hope that they're going to make it to paradise. They can only hope I'll see in the end. I remember Muhammad Ali. Toward the end of his life, I saw a 60 Minutes segment on him. And he was in Africa at the particular interview that they were doing. And he tirelessly stood and shook people's hands and posed with pictures and signed his autograph as well as he could. He had severe Parkinson's. And the 60 Minutes reporter asked his wife, said, so Muhammad is obviously tired. Why is he standing there working so hard? And his wife's response was, because Muhammad is trying to get to heaven by doing good things. That's what religion does. So Oliver... You can know for sure if you're honest enough to check it out. I always tell people that if they start with the empty tomb and work backwards, they're going to end up with in the beginning God and they're going to believe it. In the beginning God and they're going to believe it. So regardless of how many religions there are, there's only one Savior. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Three minutes, a little under three minutes for the rest of this half of the program. The phones are quiet, which often happens on a Friday. Let's try to break that pattern in the uh, in the second half of the program. Here's a question from Lauren. I think I can do with the time I've got left. Uh, when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit happen? At salvation or later? Well, Lauren, the, the, the terms baptism or being filled with the Spirit are a little misleading because people mean different things by it. Let me explain. When we get saved, we give our heart to Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And that's when we're sealed with the deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. That's when we are completely given over to Him. That's when we are saved. Um, there is a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit 
that is often referred to as as baptism of the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit, which is triggered by obedience. I'm going to talk about that for just a little bit tonight in in our study in First Peter. Um, but that baptism uh, is triggered by obedience. Acts five thirty two says God gives the Holy Spirit, and the context there is always in power to those who obey. And so. Um, when you take a step of faith, let's just say that God tells us to share our faith and you're a little nervous about it, but then you take that step and you share Jesus with somebody, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Now, it's also, I think, instructive to, to remind you that, that sometimes that first experience with the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is profound. I mean, it's, it's emotional. Uh, it's life-changing. Uh, it's, it's the Holy Spirit sort of like revving the engine, you know, vroom, vroom. And, 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 and sometimes gifts of the Spirit are given and they're operated in. Um, but remember, being filled with the Spirit once is never enough. You've got to be filled hourly, day by day. And the way to do that is to be obedient to the Lord. So, Lauren, thank you for the question. I hope that's encouraging to you. We've got 30 minutes left in our week. It's 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our Friday edition of the program with 30 minutes left in the week. Hey, I forgot to mention that on Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, we're going into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus in Luke chapter 22. Um, an emotional Bible study um, as they will now be until that tomb is discovered without a body in it. Um, but uh, I would appreciate prayer. I'm, I'm really hoping that the Lord is going to do something uh, really special uh, to win people's hearts this weekend. Here's a question from Austin. And Austin, I'm going to Apologize in advance. I don't know whether your question was. It was written, sent to us in such that, in such a way that I'm not sure if you are in Austin, if your name's Austin. So, um, I'm sorry, but here's the question, uh, Pastor. Ron, I was told that believing in the pre-tribulation rapture makes Christians lazy, not much value in this world. Could I have your thoughts on that, please, Austin? I would posit that just the opposite is true. I, I, you know, we're told that uh, a wicked, lazy servant says, my master delays his coming. Uh, we're told to look up continually. We're told to cry out, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly. Um, I mean, throughout Scripture, the idea that we're to wait for the Lord's return 
Jesus himself said that we are, are, are to pray that we become worthy to escape the great tribulation that's going to come on all those who live on the face of the earth. Um, so, so I would say it's just the opposite. The person that says, uh, no, you know, we've got to be prepared for tribulation. Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation. He didn't say great tribulation. He said tribulation. Completely different word, completely different context. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm praying that, that I would be counted worthy to escape everything that's coming on the world. It doesn't mean because I'm worthy, but our worth has been given to us, assigned to us by Christ himself, his perfection given to us. And the effect that ought to have on every believer, Austin, is that we live in this life in light of his soon return. At any moment, we could see him. You know, if I got an email from heaven, so they, they, I don't text, so it would have to be an email. And, and that email said, uh, Ron, can I let you in on a secret? I'm going to come for my church and gave me a date, let's say three, four, five years down the road. Sign Jesus. There would be no urgency at all to serve. Paul said he was spent and willing to be spent even more. That's that's the way we ought to live our lives in the light of his soon return. But if he sent me an email that said, Ron, just checking in on you, coming soon, love Jesus. I mean, wouldn't I be motivated to go out and work for the gospel of God? Wouldn't I be motivated to share the gospel with, with unbelievers to try to win as many people to Christ in the little bit of time that we have left? So, the person who told you that uh, doesn't understand it at all. Now, unfortunately, Austin, there are people that do get lazy. Oh, where is this coming? Peter will say that. Where is this coming that he always promised? And then he says, wait, God's not slow or slack concerning his promise. He's patient, unwilling that any should perish. And at times we get tired of waiting. But that's not God's fault. So believing in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, the eminent pre-tribulation rapture of the church, means that we need to be ready at a moment's notice. We need to be constantly looking to that eastern sky, expecting him to return. And then we're going to make different decisions about how we live our lives. So Austin, the person that told you that, wasn't a friend. Um, believing that Jesus is going to delay his coming. Or believing that, well, you know, we're the Great Tribulation seven years long, so he's coming after the Great Tribulation. Um, there's no urgency. I think we're to live our lives with an urgency. My last thought on this, Austin, is this. If you read through Paul's epistles in particular, um, the two letters to the Thessalonians, um, especially, but the letter to the Corinthians as well, 1 Corinthians 15, it is clear that Paul himself expected that Jesus could return at any moment. Paul expected to be alive at the rapture of the church. Now, he was wrong, 
but he expected to be alive, and that meant he knew he could see his Lord at any moment. He wanted to be ready. He wanted to be diligent doing the work. So uh, just the opposite is true. Lois, um, I'll give you the number again, 340-9585. Lois says, does the devil cause depression, and how can we fight back when we are depressed? Lois, um, um, the devil, I think depression is one of his greatest tools. Now, I don't think he causes it. I think he seizes every opportunity to, to throw fuel on the flames for sure. But, but you know, uh, the only times that we see in Scripture when the devil was permitted to afflict somebody physically and, and depression, while well, it's an illness, it's a mental illness, it's an illness that is physical as well as emotional, mental, um, was was when God gave him permission to do so. He, we have two records of that. He did it with the Apostle Paul, of course, afflicting him with, with that thorn in the flesh. God had a reason for allowing it. And then he did it with Job. I don't think that if the devil says, can I afflict Lois with depression? I don't think the devil or, or the, the Lord is going to say, go ahead and do that. Um, but here's what he does. When you've got problems, when you've got things that you're afraid of, when you're worried or anxious, um, and you start chewing on those things, I think the enemy is going to heap all kinds of tricks at you to make you fall in depression. You see, depression makes us stand still. You don't feel like getting up. You don't feel like doing anything. You don't feel like praying. You don't feel like reading the Word. You don't feel like fighting spiritually. And that's when he knows he's got you. So the way we fight back, Lois, is simply this. We fight back by being about our Lord's business every day regardless of how we feel. So if you struggle with depression, get up. I'll tell you what Paula tells the ladies here. Get up, take a shower, get something to eat, and call me back. And go do something. Go talk to somebody. Let's, let's read a chapter in the Bible. Let's pray. Don't feel like it. Of course you don't. But that's when you need to do it the most. It's interesting, Lois, that uh, on Sunday in the message in the, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to tell James and Peter and John as he takes them a little deeper into the garden than, than he does with the others. Um, he says, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. He wasn't saying, pray for me. Be on guard. Watch out. And three times we know he came out and he found them asleep. He said, you couldn't even watch and pray with me. And they were grief-stricken. They were exhausted. Hearts filled with sorrow. And Jesus is telling them, and he rebukes them when he finally comes out the final time to be handed over to his enemy, you see, tells him, get up, we got work to do. What he tells us, when you don't feel like fighting, that's when you need to fight the most. That's the catch-22 in the whole thing, Lewis. Thank you for the question. First phone call today, let's go to our friend Reuben from Seguin. Reuben, thanks for calling, you're on the air. God bless you, Pastor, and Happy New Year. 
Thank Hello? you. Happy New Year to you. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, before I start, may I say something to Lois? Hmm? Sure. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Lois, if you're listening, uh, you're, you are uh, hearing the voice of someone that battled with depression. And I had called in several times, Pastor Ron can tell you. I've called in several times, and I asked him but, you know, about depression. But let me just tell you really, really quick. The key to it is on, when you don't feel like praying, that's when you need to pray. Just like Pastor Ron just said, you need to pray when you don't feel like praying. Because the enemy, the, the, the Bible tells us that there's no weapon formed against us that's going to prosper. Now, if I can, let me break this down to you really, really quick. It said that the Word says that there, there is no weapon that's going to be formed against us. It's, the Bible didn't say that it wasn't going to be formed against us. What that means is that the enemy is going to look for our weakness. And our weakness, if we, have that, if we say that we have depression, he's going to wait for us to say, you know what, we have depression. And if we start acting as though we have depression, then guess what? He's going to use it against us, and guess what? It's going to prosper. But if we say, no, I refuse to let this depression take a hold of me, and even if we don't feel like praying, even we don't, if we don't feel like reading the Word of God, we have to do it. Because believe me, I've been there many, many, many times. And now I see that the enemy tries to, but I don't let him. I do not let him. I won't even play with it. But I guarantee you, if you talk to somebody, um, I don't know if you go to Pastor Ron's church, if not, but you need to talk to somebody and, and pray. Have somebody pray with you. Have somebody account accountability with you and help you pray because it's, it's, it is difficult. Believe me, it is difficult, and I know. And, I, Lois, I hope, that I, pr I hope and I pray. There's so much more that I could tell you, but I don't know. I know I only have a limited amount of time. But uh, Pastor Ron is a man to talk to because he will not lead you wrong. Because everything he's told me over the past three or four years has hit me dead on right. Um, okay, thank you, sir. Uh, okay, now. Thank you, Ruben. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, I have two questions. Uh, where is the Ark of the Covenant right now that uh, that uh, David, I mean that Solomon, built the temple for? And then. Um, in, I think it's in Samuel. I don't remember what chapter, but David is uh, uh, introducing Solomon as the new king, and he's praying to the Lord, and he's praying over the Israelites, and he's dedicating Solomon as the new king. Now, I was always taught that our hearts are cannot be, that God will not, God cannot, like, turn our hearts to him, because it's like free will, but I believe that the heart and free will are two different things. That's what I personally believe. But in, the, in that prayer, it hit me because David said, Lord, may the people's heart be loyal. Make the people's heart loyal to you, which told me or made me understand that um, our hearts, God can turn our hearts towards him. And it's, it, and it is our heart different than our will. And I'm going to have to stay on because uh, my phone messed up and I lost the app. <laughs> okay, Ruben. <laughs> Thanks very much. You know, a couple of things um, regarding, regarding our heart. Um, God's heart is always toward us, always for us. And if we just turn toward him, then that's the place where our heart then turns into our will. And we make the choice to follow God with, with all of our heart. Um, so it's not one of those things where it's either or, but I think there's both, Reuben. And when, when, when David is praying, make the hearts of these people be loyal. 
um, uh, he, he's 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 petitioning God like we would petition God, but but he's not saying God make people behave, make people uh-huh. listen. Um, when, when I do, uh, I, I just finished my study for not not to, for for next Wednesday today, uh, Reuben. So tune in when we do uh, Isaiah chapter sixty five. Uh, because God explains the reason that people's hearts are far from him, even though he has reached out all day long with his arms saying, come to me, come to me, and and they won't do it. And, and so they, they make that choice uh, to resist what they know God wants them to do, and that's the reason for their consequences. That's the reason their lives are in such disarray. So um, um, David is, is simply making a petition. Like we would say, Lord, I say, uh, Lord, save this person or make these people come to you. And and I don't mean make them come, but what I mean is turn their hearts toward you. That's very important. The other thing, that's First Chronicles 29. And by the way, I'm going to be starting First uh, Chronicles um, in two weeks, I think, um, on Wednesday nights. And uh, we're, we're going to see God's perspective on the, the history of the kings. Um, but um, Reuben, the Ark of the Covenant, and then I want to say something about what you said about depression for Lois. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, nobody knows where it is. I can promise you it will never, ever, ever be found. Uh, I personally think that that Ark is in heaven, um, but but that's just a guess. But but if it's buried somewhere, I know that the Ethiopians have been claiming that they have it for a long, long, long time thousands of years, uh, but the truth is nobody knows where it is and it will never be found. Uh, the ark, the true ark is in heaven uh, and uh, that's when we'll find it. So Indiana Jones isn't going to find it. Um, <laughs> okay. Ruben, let me also say uh, while yeah. you're still holding on, yeah. um, I want to make sure Lois understands what you said by, by, by not giving into it, by if you don't feel like praying, pray anyway. Ruben is not saying, and he's lived this so this matters a great deal to us. He's not saying fake it. What he's no. saying is, you go be with Jesus. You know, the Bible yeah. says, in his presence is the fullness yeah. of joy. And uh, so you can feel really awful and go into the presence of the Lord, and He that presence will change the way yeah. you feel. Yeah. And that's that step of faith, that step of obedience, and it has nothing to do with how we feel. And it's not yeah. being in denial of difficult circumstances. It's just denying the power of those difficult circumstances yeah. to control your life. Is that yeah. fair, Reuben? That is true. That is true. Yes. Very true. Yes. Thank you very much, my friend. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. Uh, uh, God bless you. You know, uh, I, nothing brings more joy to a pastor, this pastor's heart anyway, than to hear somebody that has struggled for so long with the kind of things that Lois asked about, um, giving counsel, uh, providing comfort with the comfort that he himself has received from God, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1. So Reuben, God bless you, brother. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Jennifer. She says, man is not perfect, so how can we know the Bible is true since it was written by men? Jennifer, the question that you ask is the most important question any Christian can, can find the answer to if they're going to grow in their faith. Uh, you're right, man is not perfect. What you've got to really dig in and study 
is the sovereignty of God. Um, Paul writes to Timothy that the word of God is inspired. In other words, it, it, it's, it's the, the, the pen of man being pushed by the breath or the power of God. Um, and I empathize with your question because that was the same question I had. You know, Paul had been telling me for so many years as she was praying for me, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. And I would just look at her and say, Paul, everybody knows the Bible is a book just written by men. Well, when I got saved, that just didn't go away. I got saved and my, ter- my, my salvation experience, Jennifer, was radical. And yet I still had all these questions and it just didn't make sense to me when people say, well, the Bible says. I had to find out for myself if the Bible was dependable. And again, I didn't understand that it was dependable because men are not dependable and men wrote it, so how could it be the Word of God? And I purposed in my heart to find out. If you seek Him, He will be found. God is a rewarder of those who diligently or earnestly seek Him. So Jennifer, what you have to do, you can't take Pastor Ron's word for it. You've got to find out for yourself. This is a matter of faith. And it's the most important question you're going to answer because if the Bible is not the Word of God, then we're all lost. We have no direction. So how do you determine that for yourself? You dig in. You ask the Lord to reveal it to you. Now, that takes study. There's all kinds of of scholarly information out there, um, Jennifer, about how we got our Bible. You, You can read historically about all of the attacks on the Bible throughout the centuries, uh, Old Testament and New. Uh, you can read the, the challenges of men like Voltaire who, who, who made an oath that in his lifetime the Bible would be wiped off the face of the earth. And you can see how God defended it. You can see how God defended it through the councils when there were attacks on the integrity of the Bible that were made. But God preserved his word through the centuries. And all we have to do is find out for ourselves whether or not that's true. And what I did is I studied everything I could get my hand on. One thing that I'll, I'll recommend to you, Jennifer, is a, a very, very scholarly book by Josh McDowell called uh, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a, a new um, edition of it that's out. Uh, and there's there's two entire chapters on, on how we got our Bible. If you want to do something that's a little less uh, involved then um, uh, Lee Strobel's written a book called The Case for the Bible. There's a, an easier one called um, Know What We Believe and Know Why We Believe. Two paperbacks by a man named Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E. Uh, and, and that would give you a really good start. But I think the important thing to do is just read it. Turn the pages. Let the Lord speak to your heart. He will so Dig into your heart, Jennifer, that you'll know that it's God who's speaking to you as you're reading it. It's okay to approach it as a skeptic. It's okay, as I did, honestly, say, I don't understand how this could be the Word of God when it was written by men, but God will prove it to you. And for me, um, Jennifer, my, um, my, my adventure took about just less than three months before I was completely convinced. I'll never forget the day it happened. I was at a very liberal school of theology, the Claremont School of Theology, uh, more 
horrible stuff in that library than good stuff. They had good stuff, but, but more of it was terrible. And uh, I remember sitting in a room, this big, beautiful room with stacks and stacks of, of, of books. And uh, I, I remember the door closed. And at one point it was as though Jesus was sitting in that room with me. And I remember putting the book out in front of me, the books that I was studying and the book, the Bible. And all I could think about was, this really is your word. And it was almost like Jesus was sitting in the room saying, told you. And Jennifer, the reason that matters so much is because it's been from that moment on. I've never taken a step backwards in my faith. I've never had any doubts about my salvation, nor my calling. I can with completely clear conscience tell people that this is what the Bible says. This is the truth. In the beginning, God, I can declare that to anyone and everyone. I don't worry about climate change because the Bible tells me that Jesus holds this world together. It's just so much easier to live in a world where God's calling the shots. And in order to let God call the shots in your life, you've got to know that he is the final authority. And it's the Word, the Bible, that's the final authority. Not tradition, not practice, not the way different churches do it. It's the Word, the Word, the Word. And if you'll dig in there, Jennifer, it'll change your life. I'm excited for you. Um, here's a question I can answer in the two minutes we got left. It's from Jerome. He says, and this is one of my pet peeves, Jerome. He says, how can I balance the demands of sports with my kids and wanting them to be involved in church and family matters? Jerome, you're the, the head of the household. You're the one who balances those demands. There's a lot of pressure for Christian parents to, to give in to their kids' sports programs. My goodness, soccer has taken over the world. But it's not just soccer. There's so much pressure, be it practice, be this... There's pressure even in church leagues. There's a church league as basketball games on Wednesday night. Churches have Bible studies Wednesday night. Why would they do that? Well, sports is a little g-god in our world, and especially as men, we want our kids to be involved in sports. It makes us feel good. But you've got to make sure that the priorities are the priorities. And Jesus has to come first. That doesn't mean that if there's a soccer championship on a particular Sunday that once in a while, um, rarely it wouldn't be, it would be okay to miss a, a Sunday service. That's not the, we, we meet on Fridays and we meet on Wednesday nights or other nights. But to miss worship, to miss church, your kids are watching. So you have to be the one who establishes that balance. Priorities, priorities, priorities. Please be careful driving home. There's a strong front coming in from the west. Looks like in about an hour, but you can still come to church on Friday night at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. God bless you. We'll see you Monday, Lord willing. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.